This is actually my very first podcast that I'm speaking on. Think of the software, the data as another appliance that you're using. Really trying to say about data is that it already exists and it's already latent. What do we need the data for? And how is this data going to be used? It, just because it's latent data doesn't mean that it is free. Welcome to the BIM Student Podcast. In this podcast, we talk to leaders, followers, innovators, and adopters from our AEC industry. Like a student, I ask questions that we all wanted to ask on our digital transformation journey, but never actually did. I explore concept, products, ideas, and future possibilities in digital transformation space. Each week, I meet with an amazing guest from the industry. I look forward to learn something new, share new experiences, thoughts, and opinions, and how to make BIM journey better for everybody across the board. In today's episode, I will be talking to Nicole Mader. Nicole is a director of product at Proving Ground, an AEC-focused digital transformation agency. We will be talking to Nicole about how architects can use data as a most powerful tool to tell their design stories. Let's listen in. Welcome to the podcast, Nicole. I'm so glad I'm doing this with you. And I'm so glad we met on LinkedIn. How are you doing? I'm doing so great. Thank you so much for having me. This is actually my very first podcast that I'm speaking on. So it's an exciting thing for me. Okay. There have been, by the way, there have been many guests on my podcast who have had a podcast for the first time. Like they've been on a podcast for the first time. So don't worry. This is a very casual conversation and we are, you know, it's it's all fun talk between two nerds right now. Great. Good. That's perfect. That's what I need. Yes. So uh, tell us something about yourself. Who's Nicole Major? What does she do? And what does she do in life and at work? Sure. I will try to give you the condensed version. So um, I'm Nicole Mater. I am the director of product at Proving Ground, which is a digital design agency that has a branch called PG Apps. Um, we have three different plugins for various softwares that help to bring firms up to speed with uh, data-driven design and best practices and workflows and all of that good stuff. Um, I've been there for about seven or eight months at this point. So I'm still relatively new to that. And prior, I had a very full and happy career as an architect, but I've decided to sort of focus a little bit more on my interest in digital design uh, moving forward. So um I grew up in St. Louis. I just very recently moved back to St. Louis after living in different cities all over the place. I went to school at the University of Kansas and then at Columbia in New York um, and had a very different sort of um, polarizing experience with both of those schools because one is so focused on construction and practicality and the other is more focused on exploration and argument and thought behind design. Um, and it, it, there are pieces of that in both of those places, but the overall um, feeling that I got was was very different. So I feel balanced in those two backgrounds. Um, and then following that, I worked for 
several different architecture firms. And the most recent place that I worked, I specialized in sports architecture. Um, so I designed several different stadiums. Um, unfortunately, none of those are currently being built, but I, I had a lot of great experience working on these competitions and um, learning about the building type um, and then also athletic training facilities. And one of those just opened this week. So I'm very proud of the work that my team and I did on that uh, and, and medical facilities and all kinds of other building types um, through the last uh, about nine years of practice. Um, which is, you know, relatively short for an architectural design career, but it gives me enough background um, that I feel I'm able to really relate to the people who are using the tools that I'm now helping to get out into the market. Uh, I think that's a very, that's a quick version of my background. But if you have any other more specific questions, please definitely ask. So what does Nicole do at Proving Ground? What exactly would you help people with? Oh, sure. So I I wear a lot of hats. Proving Ground is a small company and we run very lean. Um, so my primary role is to really help customers get the apps into their hands. Um, so I take a lot of meetings with different architectural groups and other user types um, in construction and real estate that are interested in adopting our tools. Um, we have a tool called Semantic that helps users to embed uh, very specific data and parameters into their Rhino models okay. um, and then visualize that in business intelligence software. Mm -hmm. We have another tool called Tracer that pulls um, all of the data from Revit and IFC models mm -hmm. and allows users to bring that into business intelligence platform and overlay that with other types of information. Um, and then we have a third tool that is really just a workflow um, kind of powerhouse, bringing your Rhino models directly into Revit with really a one to two button workflow rather than my previous workflow before learning about Conveyor, this product um, was much lengthier. It would take several hours to convert a Rhino model and all of its different components into a Revit model. Um, so I'm I'm very excited when I speak with architects and designers about that tool in particular, um, because it just saves so much time in a workflow. So I, those are my main focus. I also do marketing, um, help with our website, uh, really try to help with anything that needs to be done amongst the group. And I'm learning so much from my teammates. They're so incredibly talented in the things that they do. And, um, it's amazing to have such a close relationship with the product developers mm -hmm. and um, be able to see exactly how they can change the product and what our capabilities are to respond to the customers who I interface with and their needs. Okay. So what you just told about yourself is so typical of anybody working in a startup environment, anybody who's working. So so when somebody asked me, asked me what do I do at Bemwise, I said, I do everything from admin work to janitorial work, everything. Mm -hmm. uh, I would do business development when required. I would do cleaning when required. I would be the BIM person when required, and I would be the drafts person when required. So yeah, I think it's, it's both fun and sometimes frustrating that your role is not just one role. You, yeah. you can't just you know you know do um, 
wash your hands off. Okay, I've done this. This is not my scope of work. You can never say that when you're in a in a small company or when you're in a startup environment. So that's great. But it's it's a great learning experience, as you said. So let's talk about data. You have progressed from being an architect. And for me, I wanted to be an architect when I was in grade seven. So which means right in middle school, I knew I wanted to be an architect. And I went on to study architecture. And I know being architect has certain attributes, certain career aspirations, and the way you think about built environment and stuff. And it's not very cohesive with how somebody who works with data and somebody who works with the numbers, it's totally, I wouldn't say totally different, but it's a different school of thought. So how do you see your journey as, how did you progress into that? And how do you look at data in general coming from architecture background? Sure. So I have a personality type where I need to know the proof behind the things that I'm doing and understand sort of empirically what is better about a design um, versus there are other people and just other types of architects that don't need to know any of that information. And for them, um, they can intuit what is better about a design and they have a more artistic sensibility about those things. And I do think that I have a, an eye for design and making things aesthetically pleasing. But for me, when I speak with my clients or when I did as an architect, if I wasn't able to explain to them using actual metrics that they cared about in the design process, how this is better, how this iteration performs better than that one, or how this design operation performs better than you know the previous one, that it would kind of fall flat for me. Um, and, and then it would become more about guessing at what the client thinks looks good versus having a shared idea among the entire team about what they're actually trying to do and what makes it good. Um, for me, that just accelerates the design process. And I could make my decisions so much faster and better if we're all on the same page about what they consider to be good and including the rest of the team's values into that too. Because, you know, as a designer, there's certain sustainability values and community values and health and safety values that we are charged to uphold that might not necessarily be the top priority of the client. Um, but we can get together and combine those ideas about what is good and work toward that goal. Um, and I think I've always been that way, even from like my very first interest in architecture was back in high school. I was enrolled in this course called Authentic Science Research in my school district. And it was independent study for several years where you could choose any topic and um, do your own scientific research, quote unquote, um, where you were doing different studies and different surveys and gathering all of this data and information. And the topic that I chose to study was architecture and neuroscience and how being in different spaces affects different parts of you know, your brain and your, your experience. Um, I have not really continued on to study in depth in that track. It's still fascinating to me, uh, but that was my that was my door into architecture. So I was always interested in what makes something better with a defined understanding of what is better. 
Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So as an architect, how do you look at data uh, even before, let's say, being a BIM professional or being somebody who's into software applications, how does a particular application, how would you look at data or how would you suggest other architects or design professionals, engineering professionals should look at data, especially because now we are working in software that is all about data? Sure. I think that data is the term is kind of this black box, especially for architects and designers and people who might have a more artistic approach to the profession. And what we are really trying to say about data is that it already exists and it's already latent in what you're doing. The data is just describing the properties and characteristics of what is being done. Um, in the architectural AEC sense. So if you're drawing something in a computer model, mm -hmm. there is data that exists in the way that the model is able to generate the shapes and the forms and the materials and all of the other properties that you're designing. That data is already there, mm -hmm. um, especially in a program like Revit, because it's, I mean, we see it in Revit schedules, it's able to just have all of these lines of tabular data mm -hmm. that all just exists in the model. There's even data in something that you are creating that is outside of a computer. We just maybe don't think of it that way, but you could measure the characteristics of any object and then those measurements could be considered data. So I think for architects, they might not, well, firstly, I do believe that architects in general have such limited amounts of time that when someone says to them, well, you really need to be thinking about this new thing that you don't know much about, that just doesn't get consideration uh, because it's it just seems like something that's going to take them additional time that they already don't have a lot of. But thinking about data in this way of like, oh, it already exists and I don't really have to do anything to get to that data. Um, I just need to learn how to use it to help make these designs better, I think is the potential way to get a little bit more interest and interaction with it. Okay. And when you say potential ways how to use it, that means that it's an asset. It's something that we can use to do different things. Um, could you elaborate more on maybe taking a couple of examples that and simple examples from architecture that what data already exists and then, you know, it's just like shift of mindset that, mm -hmm. that needs to happen. So how would an architect look at something that's existing and look at it as an asset and improve the work that they are doing? Sure. I think one of the most basic things we can think about is the square footage of a design, mm -hmm. especially in the early phases. Um, that's probably something that you already have a schedule of or tabular data of. And it's something that in the very earliest stages of design can be used to project various costs um, or occupancy factors or other meaningful outcomes of the results of making something a certain size in terms of square footage in the early phases of design. Um, so one way that you could use that data while you're designing is to have a live report open. So every time you move a line, you can see how 
the square footage of that object changes mm-hmm. um, and then relate that within that same report to those important factors. So if it's cost per square foot for a particular type of square footage, that could you know, be related to a cost report. And then you can assess that against a benchmark that's been set up by the design team already to know if you're within the bounds of what is being expected of the design. Um, that's a, that's a, maybe a very overly simplified way of looking at it, but it's a way to start thinking about as you're designing, you're impacting, it's like a, a string of dominoes. You're impacting all of these other decisions very far down the line. Mm-hmm. And it's not usually held within the standard of care of an architect to um, have a high degree of uh I, I don't want to say perfection because that's definitely not right. We don't hold anyone to a standard of care of perfection, but to to hold the architect to be able to hit a certain budget, for example, at the beginning mm-hmm. of a project, that is certainly not expected. But this could be a way that you are starting to calibrate your design mm-hmm. so that it is hitting several different targets, certainly not just cost, um, but achieving the important outcomes that are specific to that project. Okay, so this is how um, an architect would try to think about data. And why am I why am I focusing too much on thinking is that I feel for most new technologies, for most new even design options that we it's just the mindset that needs to change. So let's say we were working on one design option and now we have to change the mindset so that we can have an effective another design option. I mean mm-hmm. I don't say in a regular uh, design meeting moving a washroom around is a design option. Moving you know some furniture around is a design option but I'm, but where a design option actually makes sense and it makes difference is when you change the mindset how you're looking at things within the parameters of what needs to be done so um and and again like coming back to parameters i feel parameters is all data right Mm -hmm. that's the zone that's the zoning that's the setbacks that's how much built area do we need to cover that's how many exits we need that's how many exits from each floor we need so all this is like data that I think we're already working in, but we don't look at it as as data. We just look at it as, as a parameter to design, as something that we need to be adhering to while designing. So I think, um, again, it's, it's a mindset change. Now, could you give me an example that how, um, and, and you started with the square footage, but as a design tool or as a storytelling tool, how does data become like the most powerful tool in in an architect's toolbox? Sure. I think that really boils down to your ability to understand what your clients and what the other project stakeholders are interested in. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're telling a story in general, not mm-hmm. just an architectural story, you have to have an awareness of who your audience is and what is meaningful to them, whether that's an ethos or an ego or a, another type of argument. And using data to tell these stories is really just asking yourself, what are the most important things that these particular stakeholders or users 
And how can I explain my decision-making process to them using those metrics that they care most about? And with the tools that we have today, it's very easy to overlay different types of information on top of one another and create graphics that are interactive with each other and put those into different dashboards and reports that you can share um, these live dashboards and live reports with your clients or other stakeholders very easily just by sending a link. Mm -hmm. Um, It really reduces the barrier to entry for having these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, Because imagine if you're in a meeting, a design presentation, instead of just having one static image on a board or a static rendering that's perhaps telling a story and renderings are still important uh, but this is just a different flavor of storytelling each stakeholder could have a live dashboard and be able to click on the metrics that matter to them and ask questions about why the design is doing certain things relative to those Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. specific examples like one thing that you might think about is um, a proximity data point so me being a, still very much in the stadium design mindset, um, proximity to certain elements in arena or a stadium can dramatically affect the ticket price for those different areas. And there's many other factors that go into what a ticket price is determined by, but proximity is one of those. Right. So I could imagine just having a, a dashboard that shows you know relative ticket prices of seats and relative proximity of seats And you might even be able to have several different options of if we change the rake by this amount then the proximity to this important data point changes, or if we adjust the concourse in this way, then the proximity to that amenity changes. And you can have these really sort of complex conversations Mm -hmm. in simplified and abstract ways to get everyone, again, to get on the same page and agree about what's important and what makes one design option better than another. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Again, change of mindset, change of how you're thinking about a problem. And I know like this whole data discussion for some design oriented people is like, yeah, it's, you know, okay, you're talking about all these fancy things, but how do I know this is the relevant data to my design? And this is not, of course, a designer does know what they need to present through their design, what problem they're solving through their design, but also it's like a baton that you're giving to your you know, the person you're going to be handing over. So let's say it might be an engineer, a structural engineer, an electrical engineer, um, a tradesperson, or a general contractor. So how does and where does a designer draw a line that, okay, this is the quality of data I need. And this is the useful data I need to keep so that when I hand over the baton to the next stakeholder, it's useful data for them. How do they decide? I'll give you an example. And why does this question come to my mind? A few days ago, uh, I met with a few friends and uh, they were all like BIM nerds. And uh, we were talking about this owner uh, whose BIM consultant asked for um, certain energy ratings for walls and um, certain other parameters. And this friend of mine who works from an architect's office and they 
he's an architect's BIM manager. So he said, why do you need this? And the stakeholder, they didn't know what are they using this for? So this is something, you know, then if we're not getting clarity, why are we providing something? Are you doing the, any kind of energy modeling? But even if you're doing energy modeling, do you really need the STC rating? And do you really need the thermal transmission rates and stuff like, do you really need it? Or you just want us to put in that data because you think it might be used. So where do architects, engineers, they draw the line that this is the date, this is something that's their scope and they need to input and this is not something they need to deal with. Sure. The scope question is certainly meaningful. And I think that as things evolve, as technology evolves, and as owners' expectations evolve, we'll start to see more information about this written into contracts than it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you're performing it as a service and you're a service business, service model business, then you can't give away services for free, right? And so that's just because it's latent data doesn't mean that it is free Hmm. for someone to take time to export and do any cleaning that needs to be done. Um, And then in terms of, in terms of deciding which data is important and relevant, I think you really need to have the, the key performance indicators or KPIs or key metrics for that project defined toward the early stages mm-hmm. to be able to know what is important and relevant because it could be very different for different projects, different individual projects even, or different companies that you're working with as your consultants. Um, one of the nice things is that you can export all of it. You can share all of it. Um, but in the industry, there's this reluctance to share certain things because of the, there's trade secrets. Certainly um, there are things that you might want to protect yourself from if there are, for example, errors and omissions that you are unaware of in a certain model, you wouldn't necessarily want that data set to be just widely available, right? Um, so there's a, a hesitancy mm-hmm. in the industry to share that information, but amongst different team members within the same project, so the, the consultant groups and the architects, um, you can share and overlay data from different kinds of models. So you could overlay a structural model data set over the architectural model data set, over the plumbing and electrical and mechanical data set. And you could start to observe the relationships between those different file types um, just by having their, their basic information into a database format. So you could take GeoJSON information or mesh data information or other types of information and overlay and combine those together. Um, and I think that deciding which of those fields is important to keep in your data set and um, which are not necessary is probably going to have to occur at a project by project basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that things that you are already distributing Mm-hmm. to the team, like your your schedules that are already printed in your different construction sets or your document sets, um, that data is already available and you're, you're issuing it in a static uh, form, but you could issue it in a dynamic form that allows you to overlay it with this other information. So 
if you're already signing an agreement to um, share your BIM model, for example, at the end of a project, you could also share the mesh data from that BIM model mm -hmm. and use that down the line for operations. Certainly would mm -hmm. appreciate having that 3D geometry information available for them to view in dashboards. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, questions definitely about what is appropriate for you as an architectural firm to share. And it's really going to come down to your comfort level, I think, mm -hmm. um, and your your risk level and anything that you've reviewed with your legal teams and your digital uh, asset teams and, and all of that. Um, but that being said, we're already releasing a lot of this information in static form. Yes, yes, we are. And I think, again, like I've, I've talked to a couple of legal gray hair about this and they and they always say that yes we are forming languages and contracts there's not enough language and contracts but again i believe it does come down to what is client asking for what do we need the data for and how is this data going to be used or is it just going to be a foundation to develop something more or is this data going to be directly used for for something directly in, let's say, structural simulation or energy simulation or for the contractors for taking the cost analysis or stuff like that. So it really depends on who's using the data and how is it being used. So I'm thinking the, the atmosphere here is getting really, really nerdy and <laughs> we need to break this a little bit and I'm going to get to our famous impossible questionnaire because let's give it a little bit of break uh, let's see come back to our last section of uh, rosebud and thorn later but let's look at impossible questionnaire where I get to ask some really mean questions because I know you don't know the answers so I'm going to be the mean person here I'm going to be uh, asking you some really tricky questions and let's see how many you can answer so uh, mostly it's two or three depending on how difficult they are I'm just scrolling down to my most difficult questions right now oh great <laughs> okay and i am going to skip all the questions that are related to the national building code of canada and the ontario building code i appreciate that i am american i would not know any of those <laughs> yes so i'm i'm skipping all those questions so i'm going to be just asking the questions that are related to construction or design in general okay so let's Ask you the first question. The softening point of bitumen is the same unit as that of viscosity, temperature, distance, or time. Wow. Um, ooh, I would say temperature. Okay, you're correct. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, next question. So now, because you answered the first one correct, I'm going to ask you two more. If the first okay. one was wrong, you would have gotten away with just one. Uh, let's get to the next question. The runway orientation is made so that the landing and the takeoff are against the direction of wind, along the direction of wind, perpendicular to the direction of wind, and does not matter. Mm, probably does not matter. No, it's against the direction of wind. Against. Okay, good to know. Okay, so I have this question. I have a team who does do not do does research on all these impossible questionnaire, and 
this is the first time I'm looking at this question. The Los Angeles test for stone aggregates is used to examine the crushing strength, the abrasion resistance, uh, soundness, or specific gravity. So mm. it's a Los Angeles something test. Okay. I'm thinking because of earthquakes, <laughs> it's probably... The Los Angeles test for stone aggregates. Yes. I'm going to guess it's specific gravity. Okay, let's see what the answer is. The answer is abrasion resistance. Abrasion resistance. Okay. I was thinking maybe earthquakes, maybe specific gravity has something to do with that. Okay. Let's go with one more question. No, we're done. We're done. We're done. <laughs> we're done. I don't want to torture you more. Those are super technical. I am a designer, really. So, yeah. No, no. See, I think one of the things that's been proved right now is that I also don't know the answers of these questions. <laughs> and I'm really dependent on the, the word file that's on my computer to know the answers. But it's always fun to ask. It's it's like, you know, that one of those times when you say, yeah, I'm, I'm good with so-and-so stuff. And then your five-year-old kid comes and asks you a question. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Uh, I can totally relate it takes me back to the ARE's um the exams here in the U.S. you probably have something similar in yes Canada, we have but... yeah we have yeah. oh you have NCARB too okay cool yeah uh, no, that is, uh... we have exact sorry so exact yeah. is the Canadian version and the NCARB is the the U.S. version and there's a, a reciprocity like if if I take exact, I can still register myself in all of US states. I just have to register like this. There's some, I haven't gone that path. So, but I know that there is a reciprocity in all of the regulated professions with medicals, with nursing, with CPAs, with architects, with lawyers. You can, you have to. So that's what I love about US and Canada. <laughs> you are a registered professional in one country. You just have to get registered in the other country and you're good to go. That is good. Yeah. Our big brother up to the north. It's nice. Is it? Is it the big brother? Maybe it's the little brother. The little brother, I believe. It's <laughs> trying to be nice. I might be just saying what every Canadian feels that. Why do we always have to follow what US people do? Like whatever America does, why do we always have to follow that? Why do we always have to have the, the same friends as America and the same enemies as America? Like why uh, do we? Because we're best friends. That's what it comes <laughs> down to. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes okay so let's come to the last uh, part of our uh, discussion which is the rose bud and thorn and in today's day and age what do you think is the rose which is the benefit for today the bud which is something that we see in future like a big nice flower that's going to come to us in future and a thorn like something that we need to be aware of a challenge or something that we need to be really you know looking out for a thorn for using data as a design tool sure i did write down notes because this seemed like something that i would blank on so i think that the present the rose is really there's just these open possibilities with everything right now the technologies to use these data are available currently, but mm -hmm. still being developed and improved. And the firms that are using these methodologies 
you know, they do exist. There are a lot of different um, architects and contractors and engineers and other folks in real estate who are using these tools, but there's still so much space. So I just imagine the present is this, not necessarily Wild West, but just a great open field of possibility. Like there, there are just so many different ways that this could drive and the people who are using it now really have the opportunity to get us to where we're going to end up in the future, right? And Mm -hmm. make this into something that is very strong. I think that kind of leads me into the bud. We don't necessarily know exactly where these methodologies can take us. Um, I think to, to maybe mention also a thorn, there's a little bit of fear of change and data and automation potential and um, machine learning. And there's just a, a hesitancy um, within the profession for people to adopt these things um, because they worry that it might make the actual architects and makers and designers and builders less relevant or less valuable. And, you know, whether or not you agree with that, that is a fear that's out there. So that we have the potential right now with this open field to really take us to a place where we're considering mm-hmm. those fears and we're, we're actually finding ways to not lose value in the profession, but bring an immense amount of value to the profession Mm and to be able to work faster and to work smarter Mm -hmm. and to get to better results, however better is defined in those specific instances. That's all available for us right now, just to be able to provide that extra level of value to Mm -hmm. our clients and to our communities and the other um, stakeholders who are using and interacting with the buildings and the areas around them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, so have you found in your general interaction with architecture companies that architect community is in general hesitant to use data even though they are using data and then admit that it is the most powerful tool in their toolkit to produce something amazing. I mean, I always say that there are things that really require human mind and human creativity. And then there are things machines do best in repetitive tasks and tasks. So for example, if I like example of moving a washroom around on a floor space, there are only a few ways that you can do it. We really don't need a human mind to do that. Let a computer program show me the 10 different options and let a human mind decide that these are mm-hmm. the two best options. And like a computer would not be able to decide that this is more aesthetically pleasing than this one. Although AI is claiming to do that too now. <laughs> there are filters and there are tools out there that they say that, you know, if you've used Instagram or Snapchat, so there are these tools that, okay, so this is your face shape. So this is the best you know, color for you and makeup for you and, you know, or, you know, this Mm -hmm. is, I mean, again, like I say that that's, that's very computerized version of how something nice and pleasing and beautiful or handsome, you know, those are the adjectives that should be, you know, very, very subjective. It should not be that, Mm -hmm. okay, this is the perfect face. or this is the perfect shape or this is right. And like the perfect face right doesn't exist like that their definition of that changes based on your culture and just all these various considerations right affect right, right. that it, it's kind of the question is almost like vitruvian 
right? Um, like the commodity, fitness and delight or the utility of things. Maybe that's where we relinquish some of our, not control, we're not relinquishing control. We're releasing the task that is on us to do those things which are not interesting or necessary for a, a human person to spend energy doing. Mm-hmm. I think to kind of go back to the original question, um, the firms that I've worked with in general have been very focused on things that are happening in the present. They almost by nature, by the way that the service model is set up, they have to be reactionary to the things that are happening around them. Mm-hmm. And they have to be very focused on how are we going to get this task done or this project done in the amount of time that is being demanded on us. Mm-hmm. And that amount of time is getting smaller and smaller. And it seems, I'm not sure about this, I don't have data to back it up, but it seems that the field is starting to compress slightly. And people are started like me, people are starting to explore tangential careers and some of our our workforce is getting a little bit smaller. So you have potentially a smaller staff, um, definitely shorter amounts of time to complete things in. And their focus is just really driven on utilization because they're generally paid on the amount of time that they're working on a project, or even if it's a lump sum contract, it's generally based on the amount of time that they think that it will take to complete the contract. And they're not necessarily thinking, there are groups within these firms that are thinking about these things, but in the day-to-day, the project managers and the architects and the designers and the general staff that are working on projects are not necessarily thinking about ways that they can use data to improve these processes Mm -hmm. and projects. Certainly there's individuals within those groups that are, there are more high level thought leadership activities that are happening within those larger firms and even smaller groups that are thinking about those things. But in the day to day, it's just not happening because they have, they only have so much attention that they can give to these projects. We're already demanding so much on people working 50, 60, 65, even higher number of hours per week. They just don't have time to think about if we change our process and what does that mean for my team? And what is that, you know, they're not going to take time in the present Mm -hmm. to think about those things. I think we can start to help designers and architects and people in the day-to-day adopt these ways of thinking by really measurably, again, with data, improving their workflows Mm -hmm. and their quality of work, getting them more clients, getting them more value-added income streams to their firms. They're not always based on their utilization. Maybe Mm -hmm. they're based on certain documents that they're going to add on to the project that are value-add. Maybe they are based on these data sets that they're creating, or maybe they're based on um, the completion of a digital twin or post-occupancy tool. There's all of these ways that we can start to pull back as a profession more value and evolve in a way that is going to benefit the individuals so they can work in a way that's smarter and healthier for everybody in that practice. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, if at the end of the day, and then this has been made really cool in architecture profession that we don't have a personal life. I mean, growing up when I was in architecture school, it's really cool that architects, they just don't have their own life. All they have is, and they cannot afford the homes that they design. So I think we need to grow out of 
that mindset. Mm. And we need to think about it as a service. And like any other service, it needs to be compensated the best way as any other service will be, along with the expertise and the intelligence that comes with it. Say, for example, if I was a chef, I would use all the tools that I need to use to make my dish as palatable as possible, as presentable as possible, and as healthy as possible, right? If I say that everything I have to do has to go from my own hands and I have to create it, I might not be able to create as many dishes in the time that I can. I'm a cook from like my soul. So I always draw similarities between architecture and cooking that, you know, think of the software, the data as another appliance that you're using to make your product better. Still, Mm -hmm. it does not mean that the chef can be replaced. The chef cannot be replaced. It's just that the chef can make more dishes, make them better, healthier, maybe even decrease the waste in that process, right? Sure. I mean, imagine like just a small example that before the peelers were there, we would peel the peels with like the knives and we would, I'm a mango lover. So if I have to peel the mango with the knife, I'm taking out a lot of flesh that I, I would eat later. And the the mm-hmm. actual mangoes left really like it's it's very small. But if I use the mango peeler, I'm really just peeling off the skin that's I'm not going to eat. So I have a bigger mango to eat. So I think yes. that's how the architects need to look at the software, the tools, the technology that mm-hmm. it's helping them use best resources, reduce waste and also have a life like all other professionals have. Yeah. Especially as, you know, there's just post-pandemic things are different, I think. And people, especially my friends and colleagues that I know who are in the profession, are being more intentional about how they spend their time. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing with your analogy that I think is very interesting is that when a chef makes a dish, he doesn't generally make that dish once. They repeat things. Mm -hmm. And just because it's repeated doesn't mean that the dish is any less good, right? So this gets into the this idea of productization of architecture. And it's it's um it's a trend that I'm starting to see an uptick in with smaller, um, more nimble, digitally based firms is that they're starting to consider things as product and making their projects and sequence similar versions of each other mm-hmm. rather than beginning from scratch with every project. And this is kind of the antithesis almost of everything that we're taught in school where each semester is a brand new project and brand new set of rules and all of these um, things have to be rethought and it takes half of the semester before you even start designing. I think that there's probably a shift that's going to happen soon where we do start to take things directly from previous projects that we've finally calibrated and made perfect, adjust them slightly for anything that's changed in the, I'm going to say environment, I don't mean the like sustainable environment, but in the environment of how that project is being built and and really increasing our speed mm-hmm. that we're able to offer and and have a, a product that we're selling versus a service. Mm-hmm. And it's it's amazing to me even seeing some of these newer firms that they're doing service work um, as part of their product offering mm-hmm. for free. They're not charging for 
their services, Mm -hmm. which I mean, it's experimental, right? We're not entirely sure how it's going to turn out. They're brand new companies, but that is a a threat in terms of like a SWOT analysis to the profession is that right now we primarily make money on our services. And what happens if people just stop charging for those services altogether and they're able to run their businesses without, without needing that income stream? Wow. Yeah, I would be excited to see how that turns out. Yeah. So follow those new fun firms. I don't want to call anybody out because I don't want to yeah, no, associate it with any podcast. You let me know yeah. after the podcast. I would want to follow those companies and see. And then maybe one of those people comes on the podcast and discuss how are they making things happen. Yes. Yeah. That I I would love to hear more about those things. But it's um it's just starting to make more and more sense. I think it's because I'm now on the product side. I'm I'm very much in a product-based mindset. But even with my last firm, I did a project where um, it was the second building for the same client. They wanted it to be exactly the same as the previous building with just small tweaks for the site and to work with that zoning and just very slight tweaks. And it was a big challenge for me as a designer to essentially say, okay, well, they just want the exact same building. I didn't design the previous one. And to, to work through that thought process and really start to think about it as process improvement and product improvement rather than a brand new design creation. It's a definitely a mindset change. Maybe that it's like the subtitle of this podcast episode is working on changing these mindsets. Right, right. No, I think yes. Uh, well, we are really on top of the hour. And I think we've had a lot of things to talk about, although there are many unopened doors in this data and storytelling, you know, realm. But I think uh, we've kind of, you know, opened a Pandora box in which there are a lot of beads to be chosen. We choose the bead that that's best for us. And uh, we, I think this, this whole conversation continues about how to use data, what data to use and how can architects be more friendly towards I think it's more it's more because it's it's given the name which is very technical but it is what we are doing every day we are using it so so uh yeah thank you so much for your time Nicole I I don't think our conversation ends here I think our conversation has just started uh and we will have many more episodes like this and uh, I've loved to hear what you've talked about all this time thank you so much for your time Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. I feel very motivated now to go do something like really big. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. Thank you. And till next time, have a great whatever summer's left and have a great fall coming on and have a great holiday season. Thank you. Thank you so much.